Good morning. I'm Michael Loney. Today we'll be reading from Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 22, and chapters 9, or excuse me, chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, which can be found on page 813 in your pew Bible. And kids are dismissed to their classes. Matthew 8, 18 through 22, and 9, 9 through 13, on page 813. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And as a scribe, and a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Continue in chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Good morning. Hey, if we haven't met, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors. And uh, I want to pray for us one more time real quick before we jump into this text. And uh, let me just say a word of welcome to those of you who it's your first time with us. Um, kids who are here, man, we're thankful that you're in the room. There are some packets in the back. And uh, if it gets a little too wiggly, we broadcast kind of in that parlor room. So there's some activity sheets back there as well, just so you know to help you through the morning. Um, but I'm really glad you're with us. Let me just pray one more time. Father, we um, have prayed a, a couple different ways, a couple different times um, and it's this reflex we have to ask for your help. And so even now as we turn to your word that you inspired by your spirit that tells us about your son, we want to ask for your help. I'm aware that on our own, we'll read into these words our own presuppositions, our own biases, maybe even our own desires. We have a way of taking what you say and filtering them in ways that fit our life already, in ways that feel comfortable or familiar or traditional, uh, I just pray that this morning you would help us. Would you open up our eyes and would you open us to the idea that you, you may want to change our expectations, that you may want to change how we understand uh, the gravity and the grace of following you. So would you do that kind of work? Would you grant faith in the room? Would you calm our hearts? If it just feels like a stirring in the room, would you, would you calm our hearts in ways that uh, we settle down and can hear from you. And I ask God that you also would increase what's in the room. So would you settle us in one sense 
And then would you increase in another sense to where we can receive with, with great joy. So, so bless us now as we hear your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, if you're new with us, let me just give you a quick kind of review by way of hospitality where we are. We've been walking through the book of Matthew actually for more than a year, and we're on chapter 8 and a little bit of 9. So we're going, we're going pretty slow. But as we've come into this Advent season, we chose to stay in this section because these two chapters, Matthew 8 and 9, are asking the question that Advent asks. Advent asks the question, who is this Jesus and what do we do with him? Who is this little baby in a manger and what did he grow up to do? What did he teach? What did he accomplish? What does it mean to relate to him and follow him? And that's exactly what Matthew has been doing in these two chapters. And in fact, the entire gospel is an explanation of that. We'll get to take all 28 chapters to get to the end of what it means to actually follow Jesus and join him on his mission. But in a real focused way in these two chapters, what we see is Matthew highlighting for us the authority of Jesus. And it makes sense because Jesus has just taught for three chapters with authority. He taught about the kingdom of God. He said things that only God can say. He, he established himself verbally as the Messiah. And Matthew actually goes back at the beginning in chapter 1 to 4 and tells us about Jesus' lineage, about his family. So he lines up with the Messiah's family tree. You, you watch him actually be responded to by people early. You watch him resist the evil one. You see him over and over again kind of fulfilling these promises, fulfilling these prophecies. He teaches like God, and now what Matthew wants to do is show us that Jesus really does do what God does. And so it's a series of nine scenes of miracles. There's healings and casting out demons and even raising the dead. You see him calm storms, and in between these scenes is a call to come and follow. And Matthew's organized it really beautifully with three miraculous scenes and then a call to follow. And then the three miraculous scenes... And a call to follow. And then three miraculous scenes. And then all of chapter 10 will be a long explanation of what it means to follow Jesus. And so we're just leaning into that rhythm and saying, oh, that question of what kind of authority does Jesus have is the question that we must answer in this season. Christmas actually begs the question, what do we do with this Jesus? Now, of course, you could stay lost and shallow in some of the sentimentality. But if you let your heart go where it's actually designed to go, you have to ask the question, what do we do with this little baby? And we've said things like Jesus came in the manger to actually declare war. To talk about the kingdom of God is to talk about a rival king coming to declare war on the kingdom of this world. And so Christmas really is about war. And so we're asking now, then what kind of king is this? How do we know how to follow him? And we've said that he has the authority for you to build your life on. That's how he closes down chapter 7. And then we said it has the authority over the physical world and the authority over the spiritual world. And so we come to these two sections today saying he has the authority to actually call you to himself. And again, I think that's what Advent is all about. And so we sit in these two sections. And I think in this moment, what Jesus wants to do is call us to follow. We're to hear the words to these people as if he's saying them to us to come and, and follow him. And as he asks that, or commands that, or says that, we should quickly stop and say, what do we think he means by that? I think the phrases, follow me, have um, lots of connotations. And I would guess you bring an expectation, or a filter, or an idea of what he means by that. So Jesus labors in these two scenes to kind of press in and explain to us what he actually means by come and follow. 
Not come and follow as a teacher who just has some good ideas that if you follow his ways, your life will be happier. Not follow as a political king who came just to do war on Rome. Not, not come and follow as just as a spiritual guru who could enlighten you. Come and follow me as the king. And he's going to say it twice in this section. Did, did you see it there? As he's talking to these people in chapter 8, he says it in verse 22. He says, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. And then in chapter 9, he says it in verse 9 to Matthew where he says, come and follow me after he has seen him in the tax collector booth. So, so I think this phrase, follow me, kind of grounds our section. And as I thought about that, I thought, okay, this is one of those phrases that has lots of expectations. We should just stop and ask, what do you bring into that phrase? Have you ever been in a place where you thought you knew what was going on just to find out later that you had totally missed it? I thought about the way Jesus is laboring to adjust expectations. And as I was praying into that and thinking about my own life, I had this Kind of comedic moment now at 45, but it was not funny when I was nine years old. So I used to be in Cub Scouts. That's a generous way of saying I was marginally involved in Cub Scouts, but not a very good Cub Scout. We moved around a lot, so I was always like a little bit behind, and everyone has multiple badges ahead of me. But I actually made it to Weeblos, and I don't even know the sign for that, but I, I, know, I knew what it was. I made it to Weeblos, and then I dropped out. One of the reasons that I dropped out was this moment of a fundraiser that we had in the fall. I was probably nine or ten years old. It's a huge fall festival. There's all kinds of carnival games. We're doing cakewalks and we're doing bobbing for apples and we're all in our little uniforms and there's probably some awards being given out. And the climax of the night is a cake auction. Well, the entire night, I don't know where my parents were. I was kind of by myself and just kind of going to all these little stations. And, and so I'm doing the cakewalk and winning some prizes. I'm going to the apple bobbing and winning some prizes. So when it comes to the cake auction, I'm super excited because there's some really amazing cakes. There are maybe 10 or 12 cakes, and we're going to auction those off, and it'll be this huge fundraiser for, for our scout troop. And so the bidding begins, and there's some cakes I didn't really care about. There's some that were like really, really fancy, like that moms had designed them. And so I didn't want one of those cakes, but there was this Tweety Bird cake. And as Tweety Bird cake comes across the deal, man, my heart just got super excited. And so the bidding begins at, at $12. And man, I'll go $12. And then somebody else is in the room and they go $15 and then $20. And asking for $25, man, I'll go $25. And then it goes to $25, $25. Oh, we'll go $30. We'll go $35. We'll go $40. Anybody $45? Heck yes, Tweety Bird. $45 here in the front row, right? And there's like this buzz now in the room, like this excitement is bidding because the number's going up. This is now the highest numbered cake we have in the auction. It goes 45, 50, 55, 70, 75, 80, $90 to the kid on the front row. Anybody else? I'll go 100. I'll go 125. We get all the way up to $150. Now, this is like 1986. That's like $1,000 in these days' numbers, right? So, so we get to that spot and the prize goes to this little kid on the front row. I'm super excited. So I take my little self back to the table and go to pick up my cake, and they say, great, that'll be $150. And I'm like, yeah, totally. And they said, no, like $150. Yeah, I know. I said, I said it. that's what it's worth. No, no, you actually have to pay $150 for the Tweety Bird cake. I don't know where my parents were. I have no idea how I missed the entire point of the cake auction was like, real money. I think it's because I got prizes for everything else just by participating. And now in this moment, they have to reintroduce the Tweety Bird cake and the shame of this little nine-year-old boy that I'm just playing a game with numbers, raising my hand with no real money to back it up. 
So in that moment, I think my parents did get involved at some point, and it was kind of a catastrophic moment. That might have been the end of my scouting career. But my expectation in that moment was, hey, yeah, I'll hear. I'm here. I'll raise it. And then there actually was a cost that I was unaware of and really unprepared for. Okay, birthday cakes, cake auctions, scouts. Think about jobs. Think about marriages. Think about moments where you were in situations and there were expectations on you or that you had on somebody else and they didn't get met or you were unaware of them and you find yourself in a situation where it's just overwhelming. Like I can still remember that moment because of like the shame and embarrassment. At 45, it's like a little bit funny, but I still remember it for a reason. Like there's some like little wound that happened in my heart in that moment. You, you actually have an experience and a uh, pain or a cost that happens when you expect one thing and something else is demanded or you expect one thing and something else is required or when you expect one thing and that isn't actually what happens I think Jesus is laboring in this passage to help adjust our expectations so that we don't make a mistake about what it actually means to follow him And he's going to go expectations in two directions. One of the expectation of the cost of following Jesus. And the other direction is the expectation of the compassion of Jesus as he calls people to follow him. There's a cost and a compassion that Jesus wants to engage us with. And I think it's important because we stop and think about what we understand this text to mean when he says, come and follow me. Like, Like, what do you think is involved in that? What do you think Jesus means when he says to you in 2021, follow me? Like, what, what's involved in that? How, how comprehensive is that? I mean, most of us, I think, have a sense that it's a 90-minute deal on a Sunday for sure. Maybe there's a percentage of our income that's involved in this kind of following. Maybe there's some morality or some behaviors that you can or can't do based on this following. I wonder what you think Jesus means when he says, come and follow me. And I wonder if the American church for a really long time has missed what Jesus meant when he said, come follow me. And we're getting to a space now where it's actually beginning to cost us something to follow Jesus. Our experiences are getting closer to our brothers and sisters around the world where to follow Jesus actually makes you marginalized. It makes you seem strange. It makes you actually maybe hostile or a threat in the culture. So so it's not a throwaway question. It's not just a, a random idea to stop and say, what does Jesus mean when he calls us to follow him? And so, so let's look in this first story as he, as he is confronted by a couple of people who want to follow him. They, they have a desire, and he's going to stop and make sure their expectations are in the right place. So look in chapter 8, verse 18. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the side. So he's done these miracles. He's taught these things. He's starting to gather like both in influence and in intrigue. Not everybody who's following Jesus actually believes he's the Messiah, but they're, they're drawn, and the power he's uh, displaying and the authority he's demonstrating is undeniable. So, so even if you're hostile to the faith or, or you're committed to a different way, you're at least intrigued or maybe you're really concerned. So there's this mix of a crowd around him, but there, there are lots of people gathering. And to that space, the scribe comes in verse 19. And the scribe comes up and he says to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Okay, so, so he's gaining in momentum and in influence. 
And Jesus has a pattern of doing this right after amazing miracles or, or a moment of kind of this high demonstration of his power. When people are beginning to follow, he has this like record scratch habit of stopping the momentum and saying, hey, before we go any further, understand what's really going on. As if to say, just wanting to be tied into Jesus with his power is not enough to have saving faith. Or simply wanting him to do miracles on your behalf or, or make your life better or solve some of your problems. Like that's not the same thing as saving faith. So in these moments where there's momentum gathering, you would think Jesus would like want to throw gas on that and get the whole thing in a big blaze. But instead he throws water on it to stop the train for a moment and say, hey, do you actually understand what it is to follow me? So he says to the scribe who says, hey, I'll go wherever you go. He says, actually, man, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Contrast this, I'll I'll go wherever the Son of Man has nowhere. Jesus says in verse 20, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Hey, to follow Jesus is to give up a sense of place, a sense of security, uh, maybe even a sense of identity. There, there are things here about where we lay our heads and where we find some, some initial security in a sense of place that Jesus says, hey, if you're going to follow me, it is to be displaced. Your allegiance isn't to one area. It's not to one tradition. It's not to one family. To follow me actually is to be displaced. So you have this scribe asking that. And scribes in the, the scriptures often are hostile to Jesus. So this is interesting that you have a scribe coming up to Jesus, wanting to know what it means to follow him, which I thought was really encouraging. Right? Sometimes we get ourselves locked into tribes. We get ourselves locked into certain groups and trends, and there's certain momentums in, in the groups that we're a part of. And what you have here is this scribe kind of breaking stride a little bit. Hostility is beginning to mount against Jesus. And here comes a, a teacher of the law asking a little more of an intriguing question about what it actually means to have have faith. It gave me some hope for, for places where you might feel stuck, like you have committed yourself to a certain ideology. You've backed certain, I don't know, candidates or positions or ideas, and now it's beginning to unravel a little bit, and you find yourself going, hey, the things that it promised me, it isn't actually delivering, and, and you wonder if you could switch. You wonder if you could, could break stride. Here's this scribe who his group is growing in hostility, and, and he actually turns and wants to have a conversation with Jesus about what it would mean to follow him. And again, it's really instructive that Jesus talks about the cost of following him. But in a world where we tend to hide the cost, in a world where we promise something like this amazing deal up front only to have amazing costs on the backside. So, so I remember all these um, iPhone commercials, and my phone's maybe two years old, I'm getting close. Like, they basically want to give me a phone and $1,000 and earbuds and all kinds of stuff to come and take this phone. I don't understand how they want to give this, but, but I'll go sign up, right? And I'll go for my free phone, and then they'll go, oh, and there's this activation fee. Oh, and you have a family, so there's like four activation fees. Oh, and there's this new sign-up fee. Oh, and you have to pay tax on the phone. So this free phone will cost me like $600. And in that space, there's this upfront offer of something that's easy, but the costs are kind of hidden. How counterintuitive is it then for Jesus to front load the cost? But hey, I'm not going to trick you. This is not going to be a bait and switch deal where you think I came to make everything you want better. I'm saying to follow me is to empty yourself 
and be displaced. So he talks about place, and then he talks about priorities in the next little scene. Right? Another person comes to him and says, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. This is a commitment to family. And Jesus says to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. I think it's one of the most difficult phrases in the New Testament. A place where we struggle with, like, how does a God of love say things like this about how we relate to our families? And I think it's really about priority, right? He says, he says first, let me do this. Let me first go make this happen. And Jesus is saying, no, no, first you need to come and follow me. The place of primacy in your heart, the thing of priority in your heart has to be your allegiance to Jesus. Now, Jesus is going to say several things like this throughout the Gospels. And so when scholars try to soften the blow of this to say, well, maybe the guy's father was sick and he's saying, just I want to wait till he dies and then I'll, I'll come. I think in those moments we, we have an attempt to soften the blow and actually miss the point of what Jesus is saying. It's hyperbole for sure, right? So even the way he says, like, if you're struggling with lust, you should cut your eyes out and chop your hand off. He doesn't actually mean mutilate yourself, but he means something. It's not a hyperbole, so don't worry about it. It's hyperbole, so lean in and go, what is he actually saying? He's using this hyperbole to say, I have to be your greatest allegiance. Because there will be times when following me confronts things your family is used to, things your family loves and longs for. Your family's expectations on you are going to be different than some of my expectations on you. You have to put me in the spot of first in your life. There's this growing crowd that wants to be around Jesus. And in a very loving way, he stops and says, hey, before we go any further, let me explain to you the cost of following me. And you could summarize it in this, die to yourself. You could summarize it in this, empty yourself of everything that you think you could bring and come only to Christ for hope and for help. The call to discipleship, the call to follow me is a call to come and die. Now, we should put an asterisk by this cost, right? Because the way the Bible talks about this cost, even this coming to die, it is the way that you actually get life. So in chapter 13 of Matthew, he's going to give several parables, and he's going to talk about the kingdom of God like a pearl of great price. It's the thing that's worth more than all that you could imagine. So you joyfully, it says, sell everything you have so you could have something of much more Value. So when we say cost, what we mean is understanding the bankruptcy of pursuing something else, abandoning all hope towards that, dying to those things, and pursuing Jesus as your only hope. And it will cost you your allegiances. It will cost you the primary affections in your heart. It will cost you places and relationships. But it is the way to have real life. So in later Matthew, he'll say, if you want to come be my disciple, you have to die. But then he'll say later on, anybody who has given up everything to follow me gets back tenfold, even eternal life. So the cost is way up front with this massive benefit and dividend for eternity. But it costs you everything. And Jesus wants to be really, really clear because we have a way of thinking. Jesus is going to let us bring all of our stuff all of our relationships, all of our affections, all of our loves, all of our dreams, all the ways we've been trying to build our identity and reputation, and he's just going to make all those better. He's going to have a more full version of those, a, a more enlightened version of those, a, a more compassionate or more, more culturally savvy version of those. Jesus says, no, 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 to come and follow me, 
is to give up everything. And I think the adjusting of the expectations there is key for us in our day and age to stop and just say, hey, what is it that you think you are following Jesus for? Are you coming to him because he's going to make this life that you already long for better? Or is he coming to give you a new life? Is he coming to add value to what you're already doing? Or is he coming to actually change things in your heart for eternity? And I want to just say this uh, in a humble, insecure, like not really sure how to say it sort of way. I don't know if I know exactly what it looks like to follow Jesus like this in 2021. So I'm the pastor of the church, your spiritual leader, calling us to go, to go forward. And a lot of you are asking, hey, what's the church about? Like, where are we focused? What, what is our future? And if we've had those private conversations, you know, you've often heard me say like, man, I don't, I don't know. Which is like the worst sales pitch ever when you're trying to recruit people to the church, right? To go, man, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure exactly where we'll land. What I mean by that, though, is not I don't know what God's word says. What I mean by that is I'm not sure where God will actually take us. And I want to be open to the idea that, that the, what God wants to do as we follow him is probably going to shift some of our expectations. I came to faith when I was 12 years old in the Bible Belt because somebody led my brother to Christ. And that person uh, then erratically kind of influenced our family. And I came to faith because of my older brother. And then my dad followed suit. And our entire family was changed. And my understanding of Christianity was formed in a context where it was relatively safe. It was actually pretty advantageous. In my high school at homecoming, you declared what church you went to. Even if you didn't go to church, you had to come up with some church out of nowhere that you were a part of. It was just part of the cultural understanding that God was in the mix somewhere. Kind of this American God and country sort of thing. I want to be open to the fact that I've been shaped by that in ways that I don't fully understand. That as time goes on, Jesus will be confronting some of my preconceived ideas. I want to be open as a church to the idea that as we follow Jesus, there'll be some things that we're used to doing, some traditions or some things that we even like that, that maybe he would call us to step away from. And here's the deal. Like, I don't, it's not that I know them and I'm not going to tell you about them until later. It's like, I just want us to be the kind of church that's open to Jesus changing our expectations. I want to be the kind of pastor that actually stands in places like this and goes, hey, t- I don't know what to do. We, we should, I know we, what to do when you don't know what to do is you should pray. We should pray. Let's engage the heart of God in this space. And what I want to say in this moment is God's going to serve us as we walk through the book of Matthew because the book of Matthew is answering the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And we're going to be confronted over and over and over again with our expectations, with our longings, with our loves, with our desires, with how we see eternity, how we see people that are different than us. He's going to, for another 20 chapters almost, be adjusting and changing and challenging us. And then I want us to be open to the idea that what we think it means to follow Jesus might actually have more cost than we currently understand. And, and, and I don't even know like what's the period on that or the illustration to seal that in. I'm just like going, I, I don't know, but I think there's a way that Jesus wants to say to us what he says to this religious leader 
who has an understanding of God. He knows the Bible and, he, and he's challenging him, right? So, so there's places where a lot of you feel like that in our church. You have a pretty good idea of who God is and what it's meant to follow him these last 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years of your life. You have a track that you're on. And what if Jesus wants to say some things now in this moment about following him that would change our expectations? Could we be the kind of church that lets this book frame and shape and reorient and challenge our, our expectations and then ask for the grace to actually begin to follow. So that's not an amazing sales pitch. I realize it's not a great rallying cry, but, but as honest as I can be, when I was wrestling with these passages this week, I was going, oh God, I bet you there are places where Hope Community Church has an expectation of what it means for you to bless us, what it means for us to be in your favor, what it means for you to be at work among us, that probably needs to change and be adjusted. And I want to ask you to join me in going, hey, would you please help us, Savior? Would you please instruct us, Jesus, and where, where following you means something different than we've thought we want to be really open? Because this asterisk to that cost is true. And the places where you and I feel a sense of loss in following Jesus, the promise is it's actually better than you ever imagined. It's way different than you ever imagined, but it's way better than you imagined. And even little feeble things like our human marriages that are, that are different than we thought they were going to be, but yet God wants to do something deeper if we'll lean into what real intimacy is. Like it's better than we thought. It's just different than we thought. In those spaces, as a small illustration, you could multiply that and say, following Jesus is probably going to be different than we thought. So he just starts with the upfront cost. So we should stop and just go, man, where is it costing me? How do I think about that? Are there places where I'm wrestling with the cost and I'm tempted to say it's not worth it? Are there places where I can't trace cost? I can't see where following Jesus actually is in a space of cost. There's no, there's no place where I feel like I have to deny something else or I have to be displaced. Because Jesus just says, hey, if you're going to follow me, you're, you're displaced and I become your primary allegiance, which is probably going to change your relationships. I, I don't have like a exclamation point there to give you except maybe just a question for you to wrestle with of man have you been open to the idea that what it means to follow Jesus actually costs you and that's a good thing because to give ourselves to something that is bankrupt is actually not very helpful so when Jesus says hey the way to save your life is to lose it then he says what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he forfeits his soul what if you spend your entire life managing everything around you to get what you thought you needed just to come to death's door and realize it's all bankrupt? Jesus says, if you want to follow me, it costs you everything. And that is the way to actually get life, not just life eternal, but life even now. So, so to our expectations, even this Christmas season, to follow baby Jesus, it's so sweet and sentimental, but it's war. It is declaring war on something in your life that you have given allegiance to. Can you be open to the cost? Okay, so there's a cost of following Jesus as an expectation that he shifts. And then to the other side, to the irreligious side, I think he wants to show the compassion that's in the call. So look with me in chapter 9, starting in verse 9. This is that second scene of the call to follow where Jesus calls Matthew in particular. So he says this in chapter 9, verse 9. And Jesus passed from there and he saw a man, Matthew, sitting in a tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me, 
and he rose and followed him. So if you're familiar with the scriptures, maybe you know in the first century, tax collectors were like hated people. So, so like no IRS jokes or lawyer jokes and stuff like that. This is, these people are like they were despised. These are people that were seen as traitors. They were aligning themselves with the Roman government and taking advantage of their own people. So Matthew is in a jam socially, and yet it's benefiting him. He's pretty wealthy. He has some sort of power, so he's traded the allegiance to his own country for allegiance to Rome in ways that actually benefit him in some ways. So, so he would have nice clothes on. He, he would actually demand some respect. He, he would be in some positions of power, even though he was despised. What a complicated thing to have favor in one side and, and then be despised in another. But Jesus sees him. I love that he goes to where he's at. He's in the tax booth. He's along this road where he's collecting taxes as people are on their journey. And it's in that space, in his own context, that Jesus goes to him and tells him to come and follow me. Jesus then goes from that space and reclines that table in the house. Now, Matthew's the one who's recording this for us. Mark and Luke's gospel tell us that Matthew's actually the one that threw this party. So Matthew's a little humble in this moment. He's a tax collector. The next scene is he's at this big party. And actually, what you need to understand is this is at Matthew's house. These sinners and tax collectors are, are Matthew's friends. So he hears the call to come and follow. And the first thing he does is gather his friends who he knows also need Jesus and to throw this party to come to dinner and sit down with this teacher to come and hear what he has to say. And when the Pharisees, the religious leaders, saw this, they said to his disciples, they didn't go to Jesus, they went to Jesus' disciples and said, hey, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does this one who claims to be a Messiah, who has all the lineage and all the background, why does he break cultural stride and sit with people who are on the outside, who are despised and rejected, not even just like not enough to be worthy of love, they've actually been despised and resisted and rejected love. It's, it's not even just that they're not very famous. They're, they're on the outside, aggressively hostile to the culture and to the cultural norms. The tax collectors and the sinners were outcast by choice. And when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, those are the ones who need a physician. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He's quoting from Hosea. For I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Okay, there's a surprise expectation with the cost of following Jesus. And then a few scenes later, there's a surprise expectation with the compassion of Jesus towards those who want to follow or, or those who can follow or, or everyone who actually has a desire to come and abandon themselves could actually come into a relationship. There's a compassion here that those who are on the outside are the ones that Jesus goes to. So to the religious people who think they've paid a high enough cost, he challenges. And to the religious people who think there's no way God would have anything to do with them, he challenges. He actually welcomes the outsiders into his kingdom, changing the expectations of who the kingdom is for and what it means to actually follow. Because in this day and age, to follow after God was to keep all the laws and all the rules and to keep yourself ceremonially pure and cleansed and to distance yourself from those who weren't behaving very well. And what Jesus does is comes in and smashes all of that, right? We've already seen him touch a leper. We've seen him move towards a Roman centurion. 
We've seen him actually welcome people on the outside, right? And this meal is the beginning fulfillment of what we saw earlier in chapter 8, where he says people from the east and the west are going to come, and they're going to recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is throwing this feast of welcome to those who are on the outside to come in. And so when you think about the authority of Jesus over your life, there are some of you who think you're too far gone. The choices that you've made and the where you come from and What you've done actually put you on the outside. You're happy to kind of orbit around a religious community, but you know down in your heart there's no way God would ever love you. To that expectation that you've heard and rehearsed maybe for decades. Maybe it's stuff that happened when you were a kid or when you were in college or when you were early in your adulthood that you said, oh, because of that, There's no way God would ever be pleased with me, would ever love me, would ever want me, would ever have a relationship with me. To that place of shame and regret, the Messiah comes and says, hey, those on the outside, those who are despised, those who are rejected, those who are actively resisting God's will, come and follow me. Come and follow me. And what he says that's so important is the way that you come and follow is to declare bankruptcy on your own life so that you can receive the life that God wants to give you. He says, go and learn what this means, that I desire mercy. We relate to God through his mercy, not our own sacrifices, because he came to call not the righteous ones who actually were building their own identity, but those who knew they weren't righteous, who were sinners, and that's the ones he came to, the ones who knew that they were sick, so they would have a need for a physician, and they would actually go and turn, right, to see your sickness and to receive mercy And to trust him for your righteousness is what Jesus says it means to follow him. You have to die. And you get life. You have to empty yourself because what you had anyway would never actually make you whole. This little phrase here that he came for the sick is to jostle us into understanding all of us are sick. Paul is saying in the book of Romans that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If sickness is an illustration for the soul in this moment, what he's saying is all of us are deathly ill. All of us have terminal illness. And the physician came to actually love and welcome and heal those who are sick. And our expectation is that Jesus came for the good ones, for the righteous ones, for the clean ones, for the ones who follow the rules, who want to come from this background, the ones who have, have all the answers. And to that expectation, what you see is Jesus came for those who had nothing to offer, because that puts them in the best position to actually receive. The gospel message is that Jesus came to those who knew that they were sick so they could be healed. That's the kind of Messiah that he is. So to build your life on the authority of Jesus is to understand the cost of following Jesus and to understand his compassion. And that involves everybody. Everyone gets a chance to respond, whether you've followed all the rules or you've never followed, or you didn't even know what the rules were so you couldn't follow them. You're welcome and invited. The invitation of the scribe is to declare bankruptcy on his own righteousness that he's earned. And it's actually harder to do that, right? When you have a lot of kind of social cachet in those moments, it's hard to say, I don't have enough to kind of be involved or to be welcomed. Jesus will say it's hard for the wealthy to come into the kingdom, not because God hates the wealthy, but because it's, it's the illusion that you could actually protect yourself and buy what you need. If you have enough of something, it kind of resists you or it makes you insulated from your need. What Jesus is saying is anybody who will declare bankruptcy 
who will say, I have this soul need, can actually be healed and can be saved. And it's a beautiful thing to fall into the compassionate arms of this Messiah. Because the story will go on to say the way he made it possible for you to be in relationship with him is by dying in your place. He actually took on your sickness upon himself, paid the penalty for all of that so that he could give you his righteousness. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, I I, I came to actually reach you. And you have to have a righteousness that's more than the Pharisees. And we said that doesn't mean do better than the Pharisees. That means a righteousness that's deeper than the Pharisees, one that comes from the outside, not from the inside. So, so Jesus is changing our expectations. For those of you who think you can earn it, he smashes your expectations. For those who think you could never earn it, he smashes your expectations and calls you to himself. And in that space, he calls us to follow him towards life and health, towards beauty, towards restoration, towards wholeness, towards healing, and towards joining him on his mission. Just real quick, I think it's fascinating that Matthew's first move is to call people to himself. Like, not, not as Savior, but to call a party to say, hey, come and come hang with me, come be with me, come hear this person, Jesus, with me. There's this repeated theme throughout the scriptures that community really matters. One of the things I was just struck with as I studied this week was, was the desire that Matthew has for his community to be part of following Messiah with him. And I just thought about our little community thought about ways that we don't have to be by ourselves, ways that we can depend on each other and speak to each other and challenge each other and encourage one another and bear one another's burdens is actually why we gather in a place like this, right? There's a community part to following Messiah. So if we're talking about expectations, it's not this lone thing. What happens in this scene shows us Jesus calls individuals, but he calls them into communities. So, so as, a, as a little community, right, we want to help. We want to be helped helpful to you as you think about what it means to follow Jesus and have your expectations challenged. So can I like plant two seeds for you? Like, like small groups is a key way for us to have you around people to be known where you can be honest where you're struggling. You can study the scriptures together. You can pray together. You can be reminded of what Christ has done for you. And those will start at the new year. The new year as well, we're going to do a Bible reading plan. We read the New Testament this last year. We're going to go for the fence here and go the whole scriptures and it would be an amazing opportunity for you to let God's word actually shape your expectations. Because apprentices of Jesus love what he loves, that they do what he does, and they believe what he taught. That they love what he loves, they do what he does, and they believe what he taught. And so for you to be in God's word is a massive gift, even as you're wrestling with what does it mean to follow him? Here's this pastor saying he's not sure where we're going. <laughs> we're going to let Matthew kind of direct our paths, and let's let the word of God Direct us as a people so as we confront his compassion and the cost in the scriptures. It's reorienting our hearts even as a whole community. I want to invite you to that as you consider kind of what it means to actually follow Jesus. And then as we close down the sermon here, but not the service, we stop and just go, hey, the best place of application is to look straight to the cross where where both this cost and this compassion come together in the personal work of Jesus in his broken body and in his shed blood. It's the beginning place for us to cry out to say, hey, I want to follow Christ. And I'm following him based on what he's done. I'm admitting my sickness. I'm dying to myself. I'm letting his death actually be my life and righteousness. That's what it means to be a Christian. So if you're trusting Jesus, I want to invite you to take communion here in a moment. We've changed it up in the last couple of weeks, and so now we're coming forward to take communion if you haven't been here for a while. 
So you'll come down the middle rows. There'll be somebody here with a basket full of bread pieces, and they'll say, this is the body of Jesus broken for you. They'll speak the gospel to you. And someone will hold a cup, and they'll say, this is the blood of Jesus that's shed for your life. They'll take that piece of bread, and they'll dip it in the cup, and then kind of wrap around this way. And as you go, pray and thank God for what he's done. If you need gluten-free or allergy-free, it's over here on the right. There's also some little cups. If because of COVID, taking an individual is more comfortable for you, we have some of those over there as well. But for Christians, it's a call to respond. And can I just invite you to this? Maybe you had expectations of what it meant to follow Jesus that haven't been met. And could you just in this moment actually ask God to meet you in that space and go, but what were those expectations? Were they actually his expectations? Because Jesus says to follow him is going to be really hard. It's going to cost you. It's going to be displacing you. It's going to be actually putting you at odds with other people. So maybe some of the tension and frustration isn't him misleading you or not fulfilling his promises. It's actually exactly what he said was going to happen. And maybe in those places where you have longings as a Christian, you're going to stop and ask God to reinsure, reinforce, or re-up your understanding that the cost is real, but so is his compassion. Just deal with him where you're struggling and what it means to follow him. If you're not a follower of Jesus... What I'm excited for you to hear is the good news of Christianity, that Jesus died in your place and he welcomes you to himself and all he asks is that you put your faith in him. But that means not putting your faith in anything else, including yourself. It's a, it's a way of dying to yourself. So he up front just says, hey, the cost here is total allegiance to me. It's by grace through faith alone, but it requires you to empty yourself. But that is the call to Christianity. And he says, if you'll do that, that's actually the path to real life. There's some prayers on the back of the bulletin that would give you some language of how to pray and ask for God's help to understand that. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus, just stay in your seat while we're taking communion. You can pray in that space. And if you want to talk about following Jesus, I'll be up here at the front or Pastor Adam will be in the back. We would love to talk with you for a moment. Let me pray for us and we'll take communion. And as we do, thank God for what he's done to make it possible for us to follow him. Jesus, thank you for... Not just your words in this moment, but your works for what you did for us, for the ways that you proved your power and authority. Thanks that you loved us with your whole life. Thanks you made a way for people who are sick like us to be healed. We welcome your healing work even now while we celebrate and remember. Would you call people to yourself? Would you, would you call us to follow you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.